Welcome to Edgemont Bible Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, where our mission is to glorify God by guiding people into a discipleship relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to today's message by our pastor, Douglas A. White. Why don't you open your Bibles, please, to uh, uh, Revelation 13, Revelation 13. We're going to look at two verses, and I realize that I'm going through this. I am going to go really slow through this, so just hang on. There's much that's going on right here, and I want to be able to look at it all because there's a, a whole background that people need to have, and without that background, you may not understand what this story is. It's not that you are ignorant. It's that there may not be enough information for you to understand what's the dynamics that's going on here. I appreciate what we just read there. The great statement that's made by God in the new heavens and the new earth, it's a bold statement that says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and God is dwelling with them. You follow where I'm at? That is a big statement. It's an important statement because it hasn't happened before. If I can take you all the way back here to creation. Let's turn this thing into a timeline again, all the way back here to creation. When God creates it, the Eden place was the place where all the angels met. That's where the angels were, the cherubim were, the seraphim were. This is the temple of God. It's where people met. It's the temple of God. That's where the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven were together forming the kingdom of God. And God was going to be dwelling there among them. It's the tabernacle. But once sin is accomplished, whether it's by the angels for the kingdom of heaven or people for the kingdom of earth, people were cast out of that garden and Eden is ultimately done away with. There is no tabernacle of God among men. You follow where we're coming from? That It was gone now. So how do people live? How do they know their God? How do they be justified with their God? There were all kinds of attempts to bring it back. The kingdom of heaven decided that they'd bring it back by um, intermarrying with people. And if they intermarried with people there, they would have a kingdom. They would rule the kingdom. God's out of the picture. God destroyed that whole generation with the flood and wound up then with people being left and the angels being left, the spirits being left with them, their next move was on the part of people. They'll have their own kingdom. So their goal was, let's build a place that we can all be. Let's build a place that we'll have a name. Let's build a place that'll be safe from the floods. Let's build a place that we can always be drawing down God to us. We'll be a people. They called that Babel. Well, they didn't call it that. It was a tower. Ultimately, it's called Babel because of the confusion that came up at that time. Everybody with me so far? So you've got the fall of man here. That had been preceded by the fall of one of the angelic beings who's also in Eden. They did not think it unusual to see each other there because that's the dwelling place of God. You have the fall of man. Then you have the fall of more of the angels, another transgression that takes place with the intermarrying, giving up their authority in heaven to become mortals and having this relationship with people down here. That kingdom was destroyed. And then we tried to babble. And at Babel, God disinherited the nations. He said, that's it. I'm done with you. 
and he put them off to the side, giving them different languages, and in their ethnic groups, they were divided up all over the place. In those ethnic groups, he gave each one of them one of the divine counsel, one of the sons of God. And those sons of God ruled over them and went into rebellion again, this time causing the people to worship them instead of God. So now they are taking God's place. How is God going to correct all of this stuff that's going on? That's what the Bible's about. Just imagine if you were. Let's go out here. Here's the kingdom of God, okay? And the thousand years is over. Now we're out here in eternity. And do you know what? We have absolutely no memory of what that's about. None. He said the former things won't be remembered. You won't know. Use your sanctified imagination just for a moment. This is, this is not inspired, okay? Not inspired. Don't walk away and say the Bible says. No, it doesn't. This is old Doug, okay? Here's what it says. We're all sitting there worshiping God and enjoying him together. And angels and people say together, how was it we got here? Isn't there a story? And God opens up the storybook. Here's the way the story goes, kids. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Wow! What a story! And he reads this bedtime story to people who never go to bed. Okay? <laughs> and he tells this whole story, kids. That's what you're looking at. That's why I called this series Back to the Future. Because we're, we're living right here in time, but we're talking about something that's up here in time that's all about what was back here in time. He's doing out there what he was going to do here. Everybody see where it says? That's why I call it Back to the Future. And he's going he's to talk to us about things he did in here and why they have an implication here. He's going to talk about what he did here with the Lord Jesus Christ and the implications that has for here. So it's going to be back to the future. It's your future, but he's looking at it as if it's already happened. Let's look at this little um, important note I have at the top of the page. I'm just going to read it to you. So listen to this. The Bible is written to Israel. This is his revelation to Israel. Doesn't mean you can't read it. You can. He's written, he's made it available for us all. But it was written to Israel. It's written in Hebrew to people who speak Hebrew. You say, well, that's not a big deal. That's what happened at Babel, people. Remember? That's where this whole language thing comes from. Now, watch what it is written to Israel about their role in the world known during the, that time. That's the known world. Now, much of what the Bible speaks of is about the known world, the world known to Israel. It's, well, let's just go on. It is their history, heritage, revelation for the rest of the world. It's the account of the reclamation of God by his kingdom, of his kingdom, which had been usurped from the beginning. We benefit from its writings as it is eternal in its message. 
It is written for our understanding. It's written to them. It's written for our understanding. It is not about Asia, including China. It's not about North or South America. It's not about any of the Pacific and its islands or, or lands. It's written. It's really not about anything outside of Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea. It's not written about anything outside the Mediterranean. Paul in his, uh, toward the end of his life was saying, look, guys, he writes to the Romans and says, I'm on my way to you guys. When I get there, start, uh, take a collection, would you? Because I want you to be able to give me money to go to Tarshish. Tarshish was the farthest known point of the known world. It was in Spain. And he wanted to go to Spain because he wanted to reach the world. Remember what Jesus had said to them? He said, you shall receive the Spirit. You shall receive power. And when that power comes, you be witnesses to me of in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Paul had witnessed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and had seen that his commission was get to the rest of the world. And he couldn't wait to get to the far end because he was convinced that when he gets to the far end, Jesus was coming. You follow where we're at? So he wanted to get to Tarshish. Good chance he didn't. But uh, anyway, this book's not written about anything outside of the Mediterranean. Would you look at that word Mediterranean with me just for a moment? Mediterranean. What's the word Terranean mean? Earth. That's what Terra is, the earth. Meta is middle of. The Mediterranean Sea is the middle of the earth. That's what they understood. That's why it's called what it's called today. But the book of Revelation is about the redemption and restoration of the whole world by the Redeemer of the whole world, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, the heir of the cosmos. All right? So that's this book, Revelation, is going to cover everything outside the Mediterranean as well as inside. But it's going to be a primary focus, once again, in the middle of the earth, Israel. All right? So let's go this, 13, 1 and 2. That's all we're going to look at today, Lord willing. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. All right? Let's just start tearing that apart a little bit. Let's start with this. Is it I or he? Now, some of your Bibles may have this. Uh, it says, uh, then he stood on the sand. Anybody have it like that? You have that? All right. That's, it's, some Bibles will say he stood on the sand of the sea. And that's going to be because the last person talked about is Satan in chapter 12, okay? So the last person talking about is Satan. So this is saying, then he, Satan, stood on the sand of the sea. So it could be Satan that's right there. But many of you will have I written there, that I stood on the sand of the sea. And that takes us right back to John again. John's the one who's been writing this book. So John's saying, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I watched from the sand of the sea and out came this beast out of the, the ocean. Which one is it? 
Oh, let me see if I can share with you what, what happened during that time, okay? So I'm going to use this t- stage. Now it's a, a little bit different platform. It's got still going to be a timeline type thing, but it's a little bit different platform. Let's do some Bible history, okay? Let's just talk about how did we get our Bible. Here's a brief story. In the beginning, back when the gospel was going, they were writing letters back and forth to each other. They didn't have email. They didn't have any Twitters. They didn't have anything like that. They had letters. And they would write these letters on papyrus. The papyrus was reeds that were beat together until they formed a a paper-like substance. Then they would scratch their letters into that, and that's how they would send letters back and forth. Roll it up, send it off, take it by a courier, and the courier took it to someplace. So they started talking to each other through these letters. One such letter is Ephesians. One such letter is Galatians, uh, Colossians. Well, those areas are all in Turkey. And that Turkish area right there, that's where Galatia is. Galatia is a region in the center of Turkey there. Then Ephesus, all those were along. The, and then you go across the sea, you're in Thessalonica, you're in Corinth, all of that right there. So that's they're writing in one region. You follow that? So letters are going back and forth to each other there. And as those letters are getting there, every time a church got a letter, so Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians. So the Ephesians get this letter, and the next Sunday, they stand up and they read this letter of Ephesians to everybody who's there. So he says, that is such a great letter. Can I make a copy of that? So they'll sit down. Everybody gets some papyrus, everybody gets a pen, gets a quill, gets some ink, and they start reading that letter again, and now you're writing in a stenographic way, writing what you heard. Now, this copy of that letter is going to go on to Colossae, so they can read it too. Well, what do you know? The Colossians got a letter too, and they send one back to you. There, now you have in Ephesus the letter of Ephesus and the letter to Colossae. And what do you know? The Galatians get one, and they send their letter back, and another letter of Ephesians and Colossians goes up there. It's not long till in this whole Turkey area up here, you have all these letters that are written. Well, somebody says these letters are important. They need to be not only kept here. Let's send a copy down, and they'd send them down to Syria. They'd send them down to Jerusalem. They'd send them down to Egypt. Are you starting to get the picture? So now I've got manuscripts showing up all over the place. Now there's needs, one needs to go to Rome. So now somebody collects up a whole bundle of these things and sends them all to Rome. And every place those letters went, people made copies. Okay? Now, if today you didn't have blanks to fill in, if instead what you had was write down what pastor says, It could take us a while to get through the message. Amen, you know? Some of you are going to write when I said, they're going to be going to church. And you're going to spell there, T-H-E-I-R, or T-H-E-R-E, or T-H-E-Y, apostrophe R-E. Everybody follow where I'm at? And I might have everybody here except six of you use the same word. Those are called little textual glicks. You follow what I'm saying? We're going to have a lot of letters here. 
And all of them, most of them say this thing. But some of the others said T-H-E-I-R instead of that. So now here we are 2,000 years later, and we're going to pick up and say, there's a mistake. No, it's not a mistake. It's a different reading. This one spelled T-H-E-R-E. That's obviously the wrong way. They, they just spelled that wrong. So this reading must be the right reading. Okay? This region of Turkey up here has lots and lots of copies. They had to keep making copies because Turkey doesn't keep things very well. You know, it's, it's, it's in a climate that's going to rot things away and stuff like this. So the paper's going to decay. So you've got to keep making copies of it. Not quite the same thing in Alexandria, Egypt. You got a different climate there that everything stays pretty good there. They hit them away in Syria over here, stuff them in pots and put them away over there so that you can kind of keep them together. You follow them, right? Some of these are older than some of these up here, which kept being copied and recopied and recopied. Everybody following me? When we first started getting copies, it was from all this majority of things that we had. Then archaeologists started finding out, whoa, here's a copy in Syria. Whoa, here's a copy down in Alexandria. Wait a minute. Their readings are a little bit different than what the majority readings are up here. The oldest one said he. All of this group said I. It won't matter whether it's Satan or it's John. Everybody follow? It's not going to make a difference, whichever it was. Somebody is standing on the sand, and they saw the beast coming up. What do you think the emphasis is going to be in this particular sentence? The beast, right? We're not saying, we're not oh, who's the guy? You know, if John saw it, what's that mean if John saw it? I've, I've just lost my faith. It was John that saw the beast coming up. It wasn't the devil. Your faith's not affected by that. So the truth is, whoever it was that was standing on that seashore saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And he's describing for us what the beast looks like. Everybody with me? And here's what I know. Regardless of who saw it, this has to happen before the tribulation because everything about this guy is about how he conquers. It's how he controls things. Everybody see where I'm at? All right. You've had that lesson for free today. Okay. In either case, he is rising before the tribulation begins, not after Satan is enraged and murdering believers. Second thing, it's in the sea that he's coming out. Sometimes the sea is also called the deep. The sea covers 71% of earth's surface. That's a lot of surface. So 71%. The sea was created by God in the beginning and is uninhabitable by humans. Let's go to Genesis 1-2 just for a moment, okay? Genesis 1-2. This has been caused for a little bit of controversy through history. Genesis 1-2. Well, we'll do Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the, what? The waters. 
This deep is the waters. It's the sea. He's created this thing called the sea. And having created this sea, it says the earth was without form and void. Now, get this. If it's a watery ball, how many people are going to live in it? Zero. It's uninhabitable. So it's without form and void. What's the next thing he's going to do after he brings light out? He's going to split the waters. Why? Because underneath those waters, he's got land, which is the habitable part for us. So he's going to pull up land that was concealed. You couldn't see it. You could say the earth was invisible at that point because it was not visible. It was underneath all that watery mass, and he's bringing the land up out of it, and the water then is splitting off into literal seas. Everybody with me? So uh, it's, it was uninhabitable, but God created it. God's got this thing with 71% of water, so this is an important part of what creation is. Let's go to number three in your outline. It conceals much, including the abyss, the abode of the demons or spirits, or even the earth itself. As we saw just a few moments ago, even the earth itself was covered up by that. So the seas were completely covered up. It conceals a lot of things. There's a lot of things you can't see when you go to the ocean. Um, it, uh, drones, I think, have done a whole lot for people who are swimming in the ocean. Now some of the drones that fly above, and they've been taking pictures above there, people have been out swimming, been out surfing and everything else, did not know that just beneath them was a big shark swimming around. It wasn't until you get to see the drone pictures that you see this shark swimming close to the surface, not far from the people who are surfing or, or uh, water boating or whatever it is they were doing there, um, because it's concealed. You can't see a lot of things in there, all right? Let's go a little further. When it's used in the Bible, it means... Right? So let's pick up that. When it's used in the Bible... It can mean a large body of water. Again, context tells you that. Uh, if it means a large body of water, it'll talk to you about there being on the boat or the sea is raging and that sort of thing. When it's used metaphorically, that is, it's not literal. When it's used metaphorically, when it's smooth, it represents order, peace, tranquility, and righteousness. Okay? So you are at Revelation, the book of Revelation. Let's just go over to chapter 4 again. I want to take a look at something. In verse 6, he says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Okay? He sees it as a sea. That means it's huge. It's massive. But it's like glass. So it's not, it's not confusing now. It's, not, uh, it's, it's visible now. So you look at this. So when it's smooth like this, in front of God is righteousness. In front of God is order. In front of God is peace. So that's what he's wanted to get across there. So when it's used metaphorically, it just means order, peace, tranquility, and righteousness. Or metaphorically, when it's rough and turbulent, when it's rough and turbulent, it means confusion, chaos, wickedness, death, movement of the spiritual world in a negative way, stirring up the masses of people, or the mouth of Sheol craving offerings. Okay? That's what the sea, if it's rough and turbulent. So when you're seeing that this something's stirring up the sea, that that's can be a sign of judgment. It's a sign of confusion. It's a sign of chaos. It's a sign of wickedness. Let me see if I can give you some illustrations of this. 
Jonah has decided he doesn't want to be with the Lord. He wants to run. He wants to get away. What is it that happens that brings a halt to his running away? The sea gets really full of turmoil, right? It's very, very, and Jonah knows what, after he wakes up, Jonah knows what's going on. He knows that this is about judgment, and he's the one that's being judged. Do you remember what happens when they pitch him over the side? Confusion's gone. Chaos is gone. Order is there. Peace is there. Everybody follow where I'm at? So metaphorically, whenever you see that it's turbulent like that, it's judgment, it's confusion, it's chaos. Let me go with the, the big obvious one. When the sea covers the whole earth, when God wanted to judge the earth for its sin against him, he uses the waters. And the waters he did were turbulent. They're judging. They're taking away things. They are stirring up all kinds of things. That's what it means when it metaphorically we use it. We say it stands for confusion and chaos. It stands for judgment. It stands for death. So here's John or Satan. It doesn't matter to me which one it is. Whoever is seeing coming up out of the sea a beast. Well, the sea was also known as the place of Sheol. It was known as the place of the abyss. There are several entrances to the abyss. You had some that were on earth. You had some that were great caves uh, at the foot of Mount Hermon. There is a, a great cave, a grotto that's there, and water runs out of it that's ultimately going to go and make the Jordan River. That place was known as the gates of hell because it believed that down in there dwelt all those evil spirits, all the things that were wrong, and it would suck you into it. It would draw you into it, the gates of hell. It is Jesus standing there when he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Because he's recognizing, he's acknowledging that there is this uh, place that is the place of the demons. It's the place of the, the wicked. It's the place of the abyss. It's a place of judgment, all right? Let's go one more, just on the, on the sea being turbulent. Jesus is the disciple. Jesus and the disciples are going back across the Sea of Galilee. So there, Jesus falls asleep. He's exhausted. He falls asleep in the bottom of the boat. The next thing you know, the sea is turbulent. Now, I, I think I know enough to know that's not a pleasant experience. It's not a, not a fun experience. But here's what they all know. They want Jesus to wake up. Why? Because they were all going to perish. Now, don't, don't just with that perish thing get the idea they're afraid they're going to drown. Yeah, they're going to drown. But they understood that drowning isn't the end of the program. They know the book of Jonah. And Jonah has told him in chapter 2 when he was tossed over that the seaweed wrapped around his head and Sheol was sucking him into it. The judgment was against him for what he had done. And God, in his mercy, spared Jonah. These guys are concerned about the very same thing. It's not just that they're going to drown. It's that they are going to drown in judgment. And they'll never be justified before God. Who else did they know drowned in the sea? All those who were wicked before Noah's day, right? 
So that's what they're knowing. So when you see the sea, it isn't just simply a large body of water. It is a large body of water, but it also represents the abode of certain wicked spirits and evil spirits, and that's what he saw coming out of there. All right? So let's go to uh, letter C in your outline, the beast. Uh, matter of fact, what, before, I, before I leave, let's go with me. If you don't mind, take your Bibles and go with me to Daniel chapter 7, just for a moment. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is such a great book, and it's a companion book to the, the book of Revelation. So uh, we often need to read them together. In Daniel uh, chapter 7, Daniel is about to have a vision here. Let's pick up with uh, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel. Now, Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel has been at work for Nebuchadnezzar's rule, the, the second guy's rule, and this Belshazzar, okay? He says that the Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel, had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So this was the dream that he had. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, what's that going to mean? When you're seeing now the sea, and it's an abode of wicked things and so forth, you have the winds of heaven stirring it up. What's that water going to look like? It's turbulent. So there's some kind of judgment, something coming up out of this. And look what happens. Okay? He said, in coming, the stirring up the great sea, and verse 3 says, And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. So what happened when the sea was stirred up? The sea had been concealing four great beasts. And when the winds of heaven stirred it up, they're not, they are now seen. And these beasts are coming up out of the, uh, uh, the sea itself. Now, what we know about these beasts, that they are beasts that are about four kingdoms that go conquering. They're about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And each of them have a certain beast look to them. So we have these four beasts, all right? So let's just look at them just for a moment. It says, the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Number, verse 4 says, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Number six, after this I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, from before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And here in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So he sees when the sea is stirred up, 
four beasts come out of this thing. One looks like a lion, one looks like a bear, one looks like a leopard, and one is indescribable. Whatever it is, it's an ugly thing, and it's got iron teeth, and it smashes everything. Everybody with me? All right. Those four beasts, each of those represented a kingdom. The Babylon was the lion. That was seen as a royal kingdom. Matter of fact, God even went so far as to tell Nebuchadnezzar, you have the best kingdom of all. Yours is a good kingdom. I've given you a good kingdom. All right, so there's that one. The second one that came up was a bear. And this bear is what conquered Babylon. That was Persia. And Persia devoured much flesh. So this bear was Persia. But Persia wasn't to last long. A leopard was going to come up, and the leopard was Greece. And that leopard came quickly. It was fast. And it had four heads. The four heads became the four people who took the kingdom of Greece over after its leader died. Okay? Now, we remember those as nations and kingdoms. The beasts represent those kingdoms. But every kingdom always comes with a person to run it. The, the people that were living on earth did not see these beasts. They saw instead Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. They saw instead uh, Darius and Cyrus, Xerxes and Artaxerxes as the, the Persian. They saw Alexander as the Greek. So when you remember Greece conquering, it's Alexander you remember. And when you remember the four heads, you, you know that you've got the, the way that Alexander's kingdom was uh, split when Alexander died. So you had those beasts. And then this last one was Rome. And it was a terrible beast. It crushed all, but with each succeeding empire, they conquered more and more land. And that was the whole point he's wanting to make here. This is history, though, what you're seeing right here. He's giving you history in advance of it. That's back to the future, okay? All right, having said those things, let's go back to Revelation now. If you haven't been lost so far, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm glad. Here we go. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, chapter 13, verse 1, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. We ever seen that before? We just saw it in Daniel 7. So here, he is seeing now the same thing. The sea is being stirred up, and out of the sea is coming this beast. Well, let's take a look at it. He's got seven heads and ten horns. Hold on a minute. We ever seen anything like that before? I'm glad you asked. Revelation chapter 12. Let's go to Revelation 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Uh, so we have seen this before. This one is going to be called the dragon. He's also been called the devil. He's going to be called that serpent of old. He's going to be called Satan. Those are all things that are who this is. This is the son of Satan. Let's see if we can look a little further here. See if we can find the difference of it. I saw a beast rising up, and it had seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. By the way, did I give you your blanks for the, the sea? That was smooth and rough. All right, good, good, good. 
Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Where have we seen that before? That was back at Daniel 7, right? That represented each of the nations. What's this one representing? All of the nations. So now you've got a beast that's coming up out of the sea that is fast like Alexander was, is ferocious like the Medes and the Persians were. He is, um, what's the the other? um, He's a bear and a mouth like a lion. He's got the ferocity and the royalty of a lion. So there are people respect him greatly, but he's ferocious. That's this beast. And he's got parts of all three. That's why he's not like the others. Matter of fact, he incorporates all the others. He's got seven heads and ten horns. Boy, if we could just find out what those seven heads and ten horns were about. Oh, wait, we can. Let's go to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Seventeen one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit, uh, into the uh, wilderness, I'm sorry, in the spirit, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Does that sound familiar? It's the same guy. Or I shouldn't say guy. This is the same spirit. Whatever this beast is, the same one. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And I'm not going to go into that because we'll get to that when we come to that, that section. Let's go to verse 9, please. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. So now I'm beginning to find out that these, these, uh, these seven heads are kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Wow. That sounds a little confusing. Doesn't have to be. Let's, let's just sort this thing out. The seven heads that are on this beast, he tells us, are seven kings. Five have already fallen. One is now, and another one is yet to come. All right? So what five have fallen? We go back and look what five were there. Well, we know that there was Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. Um, We had Greece. I'm sorry, Persia and Greece. So we had those five. They weren't around anymore. The kings weren't around anymore. The lands they took and the influence they had was still there. But five kings had fallen. Who's the king at the present time? The king of Rome. So the one who is now is the king of Rome. So that's number six. And we've got one more to go. And that one more to go is the seventh of those. All right? That's who this beast is going to be. But uh, let's, let's take a look. Uh, it says that those seven heads uh, had crowns on them. 
That's because the Satan is the one that is in charge of all those nation, of all those empires. He was the one that empowered the empire, so he gave them the crown. So when you see him, you're going to see him with seven heads with seven crowns. But when you see this little beast that's come up out of the sea, it's not got seven crowns on the heads. That's already done. What you have is 10 crowns on 10 horns. And the horns have not made it up to the category of empire. They've made it up to nation status. Everybody follow me? If you are, go like this. Okay, all right, so they're up to nation status. So they're going to have kings. So whoever this guy is, the beast that's coming up out of the sea where the horns have ten crowns, that guy is the one who's the leader of a ten-nation conglomeration. But this beast is the one who empowers him. All right, let let me see if we can take this. Number two in your outline for today Ten horns with diadems, royal crowns, which are ten nations. So you have seven heads with blasphemous names, which are seven empires in number one. And number two, it's ten horns with diadems, which are ten nations. Now, a couple of things I want you to, to get about this guy. Like father, like son. Seven heads with diadems and ten horns, and the dad was the seven heads with those crowns on them and ten horns. Now, let's go back here. Back here in Genesis chapter 3, when the fall of man has taken place, and God is speaking to the serpent, the woman, and the man, he's got certain pronouncements he makes to them. And the one he makes to Satan is the one we call the proto-evangelicum. That means the first announcement of the gospel, okay? And the, the thing he says is, the seed of the woman and your seed will be against each other all the time. And your seed will bruise his heel. Her seed will bruise your head. It's the seeds that are going to be in the problem. You follow where I'm coming from? It's the seed. It's the children of them, not the two of them. It's the children of them. So what you're seeing with the little beast is the child, the seed of Satan. Everybody with me? It's the seed of Satan. That's the beast that's rising up. Now, this is the one we usually call the Antichrist. They're... they're, There's probably good reason to call it the Antichrist, but the text never calls it Antichrist. It always calls it the beast, okay? So I'm I'm just going to stick with the beast. Let's uh, let's take a look at a couple couple of other things here. This is the seed of Satan that's going to be against the seed of the woman. It's the seed of the woman, Jesus, who's going to defeat the seed of Satan, all right? He's the one that's going to defeat the beast, Look with me at a couple other things here. Uh, let's go to Revelation 11. Revelation 11, uh, 7. Revelation 11, 7. Are you guys tracking with me? Are you, are you bored yet? Are you confused yet? Just, just track with me, okay? Revelation 11, 7. Here we've had these two witnesses that have been just powerhouses in Jerusalem. Now, this beast has finally done his conquering. 
and he's come into the Jerusalem area now. When he gets into the Jerusalem area, here's what it says about him uh, in verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street, the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. I'm going to hold right there because what I want you to see is when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. That's who this beast is. He is ascending out of the bottomless pit. No, no, no. He's ascending out of the sea. It is the same thing. You follow where I'm at? That's when you see in that sea and you're seeing it's all turbulent, it's because it's concealing the pit. He's coming up out of the pit. So this beast is coming up out of the pit. Now, here's, here's what you need to get, kids. This thing has been alive before. Everybody follow me? This thing has been alive before, quite a bit before. This thing is not human but it will take a human. This thing is a beast, a spirit, if you would, that is going to be the spirit that overtakes what we call the person of the Antichrist. If um, Alexander, when he was conquering, he had some things that he did that were rituals that he said gave him the power that he had. As he was conquering, he said, there were times that I would just get into a fit. And people said, well, he, he was probably an epileptic. But he said he got into a fit. And when he get into a fit, the demonium would come to him. The demons would come to him. The spirits would come to him. And they would tell him how to battle, how to have courage, how to be strong. They were teaching him about fighting. We remember Alexander, but Alexander remembers that his power was found with the demonium that empowered him. That's what the beast is. Everybody with me? That's what the beast is. It is a spirit that is going to take over some human being. I don't know who the human being is, and I don't care to guess, but some human being is going to be the visible sight to us of this beast. We're not going to see this beast. What we'll see is the person this beast is using to do his thing. Now, follow where we're at. That's going to be taking place right from the very beginning of the tribulation, of this whole thing, but probably, probably before that. Whoever this individual is that's going to become what we know as the Antichrist, prior to his this tribulation, he will be overwhelmed by that spirit, that beast that we're seeing rise up out of this, overwhelmed by him, filled by him, and become the energy and power of this individual. He's going to give this individual strength to conquer in the most unusual ways. Propaganda will probably be number one. He will tell people lies. Matter of fact, he's, uh, he's going to conquer without bow and arrow necessarily. He's going to be able to conquer through fear, intimidation, and deception. That's the way he's going to do things, okay? And he's going to continue in operation until he receives a mortal wound. When he receives a mortal wound, 
he is raised again, giving the appearance of a resurrection. Probably is a resurrection. But that's at the same time. That all is taking place right here in the middle of the tribulation. Now, hang on. We're going to talk about another level of operation. Scoot on up to heaven. At the same time, he's having this battle here, and he's having this struggle here. Satan has run into a buzzsaw with Michael. Michael and Satan are fighting in the the great war of heaven, and Michael is winning this thing, and Satan is kicked out. When Satan is kicked out, he's going to come down to earth in that rage, and he's going to overtake this one we call the Antichrist. He will now be seen for what he is, the dragon. Everybody okay with that? All right. Let's see if there's anything else I've missed here that I should have given you. I think, yeah, let's go with this. I want you to see something else. Go to 1711 with me, 1711. The beast that you saw was, I'm sorry, verse, verse 11. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Look at verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Now, what does it, say? What does it tell us? He was. So this guy's already been alive. Whoever this spirit is has already been alive. And having been alive, he's not present at the time John's writing. He's not there now, but he's coming. So he's been alive here. Did we see him before? Yes. We saw him in each of the expressions he made of himself. He made an expression of himself as a lion. He made an expression of himself as a bear. He made an expression of himself as a uh, uh, leopard. He's made an expression of himself all along. And when he shows up here, he's going to be that expression of those three kingdoms. Why? He's already been here once. He's back here again, and he's back here again in the looks of that fourth beast, Rome. That's why we can say to you, Rome never ended. Rome is still here. We are a part of Rome. You follow where we're at? Rome became the Europeans. We are Rome. So is Europe. So is much of the conquered world right now. Everybody see where we're at? I don't want to go into that today. We got so much we want to look at. This is such a, a grand, grand study. Well, anyway, um, I think I've shared with you as much as I can uh, share with you today. Uh, one last thing. Let's go back to 13, 13 two. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Okay? Who's enthroned? Who's empowered him? The dragon. Who's given him his authority? The dragon. Who's given him? All this has been coming from the dragon. This is his seed. And he's the one that's given him every power he's got. Now, kids, 
why he's called the Antichrist is this. It's not because he's opposed to Christ. That's what we think anti means. Anti means instead of. Instead of the Christ. Let me see if I can share with you what this is. As there is a divine trinity, so there is a divine anti-trinity. And so what he is attempting to do here is to show us the powerful spirit that is going to empower a human being to be the Christ, the anti-Christ, the one instead of Christ. That's why he's called the Antichrist. He's going to be instead of it. What Satan is doing is duplicating everything that God is to give a complete false picture to unbelieving people that this really is the Christ. The other one was the imposter. That's how they're going to believe the lie that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 spoke of. That's why he can sit in the temple and declare himself to be God because he's going to have the appearance of having been that great Messiah. So let's recap. The beast that John saw was a spirit that's coming out of the bottomless pit who had already been here before. He had been shown up as a lion. He had shown up. I'm going to go in so far as to say he had shown up as Nimrod. He had shown up at Babel. He had shown up at Babylon. He had shown up at Egypt. He had shown up at Syria. He had shown up in uh, Greece. He'd shown up in Persia. He had shown himself before. He's been the same character, and every time he did, he always overtook a human being to make that human being superhuman. Give him conquering powers. Give him wisdom. Give him ferocity. He's always taken over someone. He's going to do that same thing again. Only this time he's coming back as all three manifestations he was before in fullness now of image number four, beast number four. All of this is happening to us, brothers and sisters, because it is a spiritual war that we're in. And if you don't remember that, you're going to get all confused. Don't be confused. We're not a people who need to be confused. We're a people who know the truth, and we want to stick with the truth. That's why you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's why you abide in Christ and His words abide in you, because there is enough propaganda and information available today to confuse even the elect if they'll listen to it. Do not live by lies. Live the truth. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the exact expression of you. And thank you that is uh, that exact expression. He is the Son of God, the inheritor of the kingdom. He is the one who's going to finish this battle. Uh, Father, we are so excited to see what is going to take place in the, the years to come. Help us to see that we're a people of the future not a people of the past. Keep us from looking back on our past and thinking how bad we were and instead look to the future and see how you've made us. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, make us the people of God who live the truth. Father, is anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that right now has never submitted themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ, let that be today. Let them see 
the, the great peril they're in, the great judgment that's about to take place, and let them see the great grace that's been shown to them to save them. In Jesus' name, amen. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. It's not like you have a choice. There, there's not a neutral. I'm sorry, but it just isn't. You're either for him or against him. Uh, and this is where we have to take a real serious stand, brothers and sisters. We, we are saved by the grace. We have been given a, a brand new life. We can't play anymore. It's past time to play. This is a battlefield. And there are serious things that are going on. There are some who um, understand the war better than we do that are on the other team. They're out to win, and they're planning to win. We have to get that same mindset. We have to win this thing. There's no neutral in it. You're going to be on one side or the other in this battle. Right? Uh, Al has let me know that there are uh, the, your monthly scripture readings. He has those. Those are available for you back at the back. Yep, right there on the little table. So those are available for you. And for those of you coming on Wednesday nights, there are questions available. The, the fifth chapter questions are back on the uh, back there as well. So stop by and pick up your questions for Wednesday night. We'll look forward to seeing all of you then on Wednesday night for sure. All right. We'll see you tonight first at uh, 6 o'clock. So let's up the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. This is a tremendous big thing that's happening. Help us to, to stop being uh, uh, thinking that we can just simply be observers in this thing. Help us get involved, get engaged, get our head in the war. And I want to thank you for what you're going to do, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you later. We hope God has encouraged you with today's message by Pastor White. Thank you for joining us at the Edgemont Bible Church. We'd love to have you visit us if you're ever in the area. For directions, more information, or to support the ministry of Edgemont Bible Church, please go to our website at edgemontbiblechurch.org. That's edgemontbiblechurch, all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Edgemont Bible Church, where the Sunday morning message is broadcast live.